The psychoanalyst and writer Jessica Benjamin has tried to understand how we become recognized by others. This begins, of course, when we're infants and we don't have much control over how we're seen and how we're responded to, but it develops through all of life. In her books, The Bonds of Love and Like Subject, Love Objects, and the most recent Beyond Doer and Done To, and many, many articles and other books, she's tried to understand how do we assert ourselves, be recognized, without trying to dominate the other's perception. I had a conversation with her about this, which touches also on the possibility of dialogue and communication in an increasingly polarized world. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. I'm sitting here with Jessica Benjamin in your beautiful apartment on Riverside Drive in Manhattan. Thank you, Jessica, for being on Think About It. Oh, you're most welcome. I'm happy to be on Think About It. So, I'm really excited to talk to you I've read all of your books and some articles, and I started reading them a long time ago, and I always thought what you were trying to do and why it helped me, why I found them so useful, and I'm not a psychoanalyst, I'm not a therapist, that you were trying to understand how we experience, recognize, engage with, and maybe in some ways make sense of other people. Yes, yes. And I see in your book kind of a story that you started with a very early part of our own development of infants and their mothers of this relationship. And then if we can, we'll get to your most recent work, which goes into recognizing other people, people like us, people very different from us, people who we define as ours, like us or different from us. And that goes into very large, difficult, really politically unsolvable problems. But I thought you started out there to open up a space to think about relation between the mother and child as one of the first relationships we have as human beings. Yes, well, as a psychoanalyst, it is natural to begin developmentally, that is to begin with not only how the child comes to be more sort of finished product of a human being after starting out as this rather undeveloped, helpless animal. and. Freud, of course, talked about the original helplessness of human animals as opposed to others who are really born needing a very long period of dependency. So during this period of dependency, you could say that the wiring for our system is laid down. And in Freud's terms, that meant that our attachment to our loved ones who took care of us and who were meant to be our primary other in engaging, in touching, in feeling, in loving, in listening, the mother and the father, Freud put them sort of in the center of the picture of the child's life. And even though Freud imagined that the relationship in so many ways was determined just by the child's own intrinsic instinctual development, he was already allowing for the fact that our attachment and our dependency were going to shape 
the rest of our life. And so all subsequent psychoanalytic thinkers in the late 20th century began to work more on this idea of attachment, dependency, early life, and what does it mean that we are so dependent in the beginning, and what does shape us in that interaction around the dependency. When you describe this first dyad of the caregiver, mother, and child, there's one, if you think of the word attachment, one could be psychological, which then we understand later on as maybe other how we shape relationships with other people. The other one is purely in terms of survival. The child or the infant needs somebody to take care of him or her, to just live. Does, is in Freud there a distinction to think between just taking care of somebody on a very basic level, feed them, protect them, versus being there for somebody? Because the words you used encompass or could encompass both of those. Well, of course, the famous thing in Freud was there was a split between the survival of the ego and what he saw as the love relationship, the way in which we put our energy, shall we say, into the other, whom he called the love object. Now, later thinkers tended to emphasize much more, as I do, and as I think virtually everyone does now, the social aspect of the baby and the fact that there's no way that you can distinguish for a baby between the person who feeds me and the person who I'm going to interact with and have all my first social experiences with who I'm going to smile at and coo at and snuggle with and hopefully is going to respond to all those smiles and coos in a way that makes me feel like I'm being spoken to. And this early experience of being spoken to is as much a part of what I call recognition as being changed or fed when you need it. But of course there are people who are capable of feeding and changing a baby without speaking to the baby. And this is very deleterious. Can you say something about this word recognition? So when you started looking at this, what did you want to um, describe in that? So what I always said about recognition was that recognition is the way the other shows us that we've had an impact. Recognition is the way that what we say or do is affirmed by the other as meaning what it means and as having happened and as having affected them. So affect, our emotions, is the primary transmitter of recognition. Mm -hmm. But we do that through the gaze, through the voice, and so forth. In, in some of the work, in two of your books, you talk about the debt recognition, because it involves an infant, but in all other relationships. It's not just verbal, not just saying, I see you, there you are. But there are different dimensions to it. Well, it moves all the way up from, you know, I see that you're uncomfortable, I see that you are cooing or smiling at me, it moves all the way up to, I see that you are another human being who confronts me with your sameness and your difference and the fact that you deserve to be on the earth as much as I do, let's say. Uh, so the term recognition for both good and ill spans everything from, yeah. you know, I, I recognize that you're gazing at me and I recognize that you're a human being who is suffering or you're a human being whose rights are the same as mine right. uh, and or simply that we as human beings together feel our common humanity both in our suffering and our joy and in fact of course our right to be here. So this last part in this kind of reciprocal recognition that the other person has as much of a right to exist as I do. Right. So 
To stay for a moment with this mother-child, why did you become interested in this? Because it's deeper than just a theoretical problem for you, it seems. When I read those books, I mean, they, personally, why did I? Yeah, that's a well, they, they, because it because I was I actually was thinking about recognition philosophically. You could say uh, where it starts in Hegel with the idea that only one person can win the struggle for recognition. And that dilemma, which has been sort of reworked many times since the uh, time that Hegel wrote in the early 19th century, that dilemma of can more than one person be recognized, can we mutually recognize each other, seemed to me to require an answer about what is usually called human nature. But for us, in my field, and many other people, means our psychology our hardwired psychology, mm-hmm. the psychology, shall we say, of most human beings, if not all. And the psychology of most human beings, to be understood, we must look at the very beginning of life and see how does that psychology form. I mean, if I'm going to argue that I believe that human beings have a capacity to recognize each other and that recognizing each other produces a different kind of relationship and I'll even say joy, love, caring, and respect, dignity. If I want to argue all that, I have to say there's some basis in the human makeup that allows that to develop. So my question was, how do we develop the capacity to recognize the other? It was obvious that the baby needed to be recognized by the mother or caregiver. But how does the baby grow into a child who becomes an adult who can recognize the other? And to recognize the other in terms that throughout your work you define as relational in a perspective that's different from the Hegelian where one needs to dominate and master that's not, the other. That's of course, in, in, shall we say, to be simplistic, true recognition. Right. Real recognition means you are a subject like me, however different right. you are. Right? Well, can we stay with this for a moment? So in some ways, but there is another theory out there, the Hegelian one, that I recognize the other as different from me and I will impose my version, view, etc. of the world. You took that to say this doesn't quite explain, and I'm trying to figure out, is it, it doesn't explain that we have a capacity for being otherwise. Well, if you are a woman and you are living in the sort of mid to late 20th century, then you are very aware that if there is only going to be one dominating person, that's not going to be you. So you have to bring feminism into this mix. You have to say that the original master-slave relation that Hegel is talking about is not, from a feminist point of view, from a woman's point of view, is not a powerful man and a less powerful man. It is a man who assumes power over woman. That is to say, men need to have power over women. And I'm sorry to be jumping in a little further than you might have wanted at this moment, but why? Because we go back to the original problem of dependency. And if I don't want to recognize the person on whom I'm dependent, which is what that master-slave thing is all about, that need to dominate is all about, I don't want to recognize that I can't control this person who I'm totally dependent on because she gives life, she gives milk, she is the source of all goodness. So if I don't want to admit that, I dominate her and I think I've got the problem solved. And in, in the book Life Subject, Love Objects, I think you're right that the idea of motherhood and maternity becomes a kind of monstrosity because of this overbearing, all-powerful being. 
And the theory that was available is for the little baby to separate and switch in some ways to some other affect, but to turn the mother into this at once all-powerful, but also the person who has to be overcome. Yes, if sure. she's all-powerful, you really better get a handle on controlling her. Right, right, right. <laughs> and so there's that mix, right? You know, the more, uh, more powerful and dangerous she is, the more you have to control her, and the more being dependent on her feels precarious. So if you think about that as, uh, that goes back to Dorothy Dinnerstein in particular, who introduced that idea in her book Mermaid and Minotaur in 1976, which, which is a landmark moment. Which I do want to underline, the Mermaid and Minotaur, which I have to admit and confess, I didn't know about, and I saw it in one of your references, and I saw it in Cal Gilligan's references, but it's a book that I wasn't taught, that wasn't part of the canon of readings, because I probably didn't take the proper course in feminist theory. And it's an incredible book. So Dinnerstein tried to understand that the problem of the world really it was yes and it was a it was electrifying because she was saying yes this is the problem of the world that we have that patriarchy is a psychological state of mind as well as a social reality and in that state of mind which in a sense gives rise to the social reality we think we have to control this dangerous but absolutely indispensable source of life. Right. Which she actually in this book in, in The Mermaid and the Minotaur is so interesting. She then also talks about ecology and writes about things that today preoccupy a lot of this next right. generation. See? That also nature is turned into this. Life-giving, also overwhelming, has to be right. dominated and controlled. The domination of nature is related to the domination of women. And so the early 70s feminism, 80s feminism was about that relationship in which women equals nature and they both have to be nominated. So you as a psychoanalyst and then also looking at all the studies of infants and mothers, what did you find that didn't mesh with Hegel's theory? In some ways when you observed or when you talked to people or when you looked at your own experiences, what didn't, because in some ways that was a very dominant theory. But it seems to me that you saw things and found things that didn't that weren't explained properly. Yes, so I'm glad you brought me back to that because I was going to go back to that. So the question was in not how do human beings develop, but how do human beings develop in light of the problem of domination, that is, in light of the fact that we want to see another possibility for solving this core issue of dependency and this core issue of vulnerability, of needing the other. If we didn't need the other, it would probably be a lot easier to recognize them. Now that doesn't include all difficulties in terms of recognizing the other, and we'll get back to that later. But for now, if we're just thinking about women as mother, the difficulty was that you had in psychoanalytic theory and in general thinking a kind of assumption of the male subject, because the subject was male, that was certainly true in all philosophy in general, thinking about who's the subject of history, that is, who's making history. So now you have the male subject, and he has to deal with the fact that there's this uh, potentially powerful and dangerous other on whom he's dependent. Now, in Hegel, that means clearly that she has to be subjugated. The issue was, in a sense, to translate that out of the political dimension for a moment into the psychological dimension and say, is it true that 
it's simply our human nature to respond to dependency and vulnerability, and including our mortality. With that form of control, is that uh, really, first of all, you could ask if it's anthropologically ubiquitous, but you could say, is that really necessary? And I think that you, you have to be able to say that there's something else inside us human beings that steers us toward the opposite of domination, mm -hmm. which is recognition, which is to feel like, wow, here's this other mind. And I want to stay this for this, with this for a moment. The opposite of domination and control is recognition. It's not submission or total acceptance. So in some ways what you're proposing right. is what you're calling recognition and a relational thought mm. is the domination because the other one is this binary. There's domination or there's submission. There's strength, there's weakness. There's male, there's female. There's right. dependency, there's control. But you're saying there's something else. So you're introducing something in this work that is a ultimately, you know, I'm going to ask you to explain this category of the third, but there is something that's not the opposition of domination, which in some ways Hegel and philosophy is, thinks ultimately there's only another side to it. Right. Either you dominate or you dominate. It's a binary. Yeah. And binaries are always problematic. Is there something in Freud that hints at signals that there is some problem with this binary, that there is... Yeah, but he thought it was insoluble. If you yes. look at civilization and its discontents, for instance, which I've read many, many times. I can't even say how many times. And I love it. I love the way he thinks. But, you know, you come right up into this dead end, uh, except for the fact that he thinks maybe Eros will win uh, over death, uh, over destruction. Maybe Eros will win. But, but he has no basis for it in his own theory because Eros, which would sort of, you know, correspond to recognition, has very little on its team. If you look at Freud, right, right. and death and destruction has like a really great team going, <laughs> all, all the force necessary, you know. So where is the force of Eros going to, uh, you know, be supported? And that problem for me means you do, you sh let's go back to the beginning with sort of what I say to Freud. Let's go back to the beginning and realize that the relationship that you're having to this person who is you're nurturing you and is very different than the way you look at it Freud you're not just getting milk from her you're mm. not just dependent on her for survival and milk you're actually getting love from her in a very uh, specific way that you aren't thinking about which mm. is that only through her recognition are you feeling that everything you do matters and where does this missing piece what happens in Freud? How do we develop our subjectivity? Is it that we break ultimately with that dependency? That we have to switch or move on and say... We oh, there's a terrible uh, system in Freud because what happens if, if you... Again, putting this very crudely, but according to the way some people see it, you know, you're stuck in this dyadic trap with the mother. You're not developing. You're not actually having a reciprocal experience where just as she's recognizing you, you're recognizing her and getting to see that she's more of an independent subject uh, as well. And each move that you make toward independence in a way is granting her a certain kind of independence. Uh, instead, you know, dad has to come in and rescue you. Right. And the whole idea that mother has a mind is, as they like to say, scotomized. That is to say, it is covered over. Uh, like mm -hmm. It's the dark side of the moon. 
And Dittersteen has this old cartoon where that she got from James Thurber, who was a, a, an important mid-century figure, in which there's this sort of huge amorphous woman figure around outside the house, and he says, sometimes you wonder what she's thinking. The whole implication of which she, is that she has no mind. She has no mind. So instead, here you are, this is the person who has the most mind, whom mm -hmm. you encounter. She's the one taking care of you, and if it's not your own mother, it's some other woman. And she's taking care of you, or several of them are taking care of you, and of course you know they have yeah. a mind. And of course you feel their minds if you're having any kind of good interaction with them. And and feminism yeah. basically are saying... Women have a mind. Right. Women have an experience. Right. This experience is not of total sacrifice to the child, but to recognize that there's it's a constant It's not submission. Interact. Right. It's not submission and sacrifice unless you're under, under you know, certain kinds of patriarchal conditions. It very much is. And one of the things that makes it a sacrifice is that you know at a certain age your child will be, if he is male, removed from you and turned against you and told that you don't have a mind, which is not going to be his initial impression of you in the early years of life. So there's also this fundamental experience of alienation and betrayal, and in certain patriarchal cultures uh, that are organized around violence, uh, you know, boys are extracted from that relationship and turned into little warriors, right? And then all of those other mm -hmm. unpleasant things happen. So if we're just starting here with the fundamental question of where did domination and recognition oppose each other in terms of man and woman and in terms, therefore, of mother and child, where the child is assumed to be the male child, you can see how having Freud's theory of development, the Oedipus idea, was that father is this figure of so-called liberation, but in reality father is teaching the boy to become a dominator like himself. We need to insert the objection here, not only that it, it's false that recognition is a one-way street, you also need to say if you see recognition as a one-way street, that's a byproduct of having already set up this system where the child is going to, in a sense, erase that early yeah. experience in which there was mutuality. And is the child in this idea what's really becoming clear, which is amazing, that in the psychological process of which are people, they're basically pre-political, it's a little infant and it's a mother in this very private sphere, this dyad, you're saying this is actually the inscription into the patriarchy. Yeah. That women have a certain role of subjugation and men have another role of domination. Right. And babies are brought into it. So the entire theory, it's not just a psychological theory, moving alongside and outside of politics, but you're saying it's actually this is the patriarchy, this conception of what, how our life actually begins as beings on, once we're born. So when you did your work, you wanted to open up the space and say, let's rethink what really happens here. Right. And let's rethink it starting with the critique of Hegel and Freud. And so may I introduce here what for me was a decisive piece in this whole attempt to get beyond the dilemma that Freud and Hegel set up where you always have to have one mm -hmm. master. You see, if that were true, then, okay, the only way you could get out of this was by reversing things. Let's say now women are going to dominate men. or you know, right. in, in some sense, you're never going to get out of this cycle of domination and submission. So you still had to solve the problem of how would you get out of the cycle of domination and submission. 
mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so I'll bring in here the very important psychoanalyst, Donald Winnicott, who wrote in Britain and who was initially a pediatrician and wrote enormous amount about mothers and babies and gave radio broadcasts and was a really popular person in Britain. But he also had some unbelievably brilliant uh, insights that radically change both how we practice psychoanalysis and how we think about development. And his insight was that, and let me see if I can put this in a concise, simple way, his insight was, I'll use his term and then explain it, he, his insight was we have to destroy the object. Now the, by object he meant the love object, that is the other person who is in our minds as well as outside us the, the person whom we love and depend upon. And he was saying that in our minds, when mother does something we don't like or something that disturbs us, when we are small or when we want to be more independent and we feel that we are being prevented from doing the thing we want to do, and I think that's the most crucial part for me, when I want to exert my will and I want to be an independent being, mother comes along and says, no, you can't you know, play with that knife, or mother says something else. Now, the rage that you have at the mother, the aggression, was for Winnicott, unlike Freud, not some kind of primary force inside you that was going to uh, necessarily determine your life. Rather, this aggression is very much part of an, an, a relationship that you have to the other. And the fate of that aggression, which has everything to do with whether we have to have power over the other or not, the fate of that aggression was, in Winnicott's mind, up for grabs. And how is it up for grabs? Because if the baby, and we're speaking very generally now, Mm -hmm. is completely uh, what we call dysregulated, that is, you know, uh, their nervous system is just, you know, blowing a circuit, and the mother is not that anxious, and the mother is also not retaliating, and the mother is just saying, well, that's really upsetting you right now, isn't it? Mm-hmm. In other words, if the mother does what Winnicott calls surviving, mm-hmm. if she survives that moment of, in a sense, attack on her otherness because she's a, an obstacle, mm-hmm. or if she survives that outrage which is too much and overwhelming and actually is like blowing the baby circuits but it's not blowing hers if she in other words remains intact in the face of all of the stuff that happens when you're a little kid from rage that you're being thwarted to just general falling apart because you're scared or tired if she can survive all that being both not retaliating and also not collapsing then in Winnicott's mind, that's how she becomes a separate subject mm-hmm. for you. Mm-hmm. She doesn't become a separate subject for you because she has power over you and now you're submitting. She becomes a separate subject because she's staying, in a certain sense, both related and separate. She is both outside mm-hmm. your distress and she is relating to your mm-hmm. distress. Mm-hmm. So she's having a response that is both the same and different. It's the same in the sense that she shows she really understands and recognizes your distress, but she's not falling apart in the distress. Mm -hmm. When that happens and she survives and is a separate subject, that's the beginning for the child of recognizing the mother. Mm -hmm. And it's not a recognition that's given out of submission, quite the contrary. 
it's like, oh, I recognize you because you're like still okay when I feel like the world is falling apart. Mm -hmm. So you're reassuring me that the world is okay. So now you are, shall we say, the subject who represents mm -hmm. the good thing about mm -hmm. the world, which is the world doesn't crack up when I crack up. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you a question that you probably anticipate. Does this put a lot of pressure on the mother? to save the world. So is it, is it a way, I mean, and we're not there yet. I know you're giving me Winnicott yes. as a model, but yeah. uh, to just say, this is not meant to say women are failing and now if they were just better mothers, things would be better, right? So this is not a... No, because this is a first of all, this is just a model. Right, this so this is, is important this to, is just to recognize. This is just a psychological model. Right. And, and this could be happening not just with mothers, but with fathers, and in any, but it also happens in any important relationship. Okay. And also, it happens in the therapy relationship. Yeah, yeah. That it's important that when somebody comes in to see me and feels really overwhelmed, they feel that on the one side, I really get why it is so painful, and maybe I really feel that pain with them, but I'm not going under, and I'm not overwhelmed in mm -hmm, the same way mm -hmm. that they are. Mm -hmm. So always holding this tension between I'm with you, mm -hmm. but I'm not drowning mm -hmm. is crucial in any moment where our affect escalates above what we can mm -hmm. tolerate, when it becomes too much. So I just wanted to underline this is a model. It's not a way to say women oh, have not been good enough models. No, no, no. We, I mean, the point is that you that I was saying earlier was you could be that mother and you could be a surviving subject. Uh, you could be somebody where, uh, as Winnicott says, oh, you're, you survived, so now I can love you. You know, right. you're really out there. You're not just a part of me. You're not just, mm -hmm. like, involved in the same chaos I'm in. So now I can love you mm -hmm. because you're the source of my soothing, but you're also uh, a separate person. Mm -hmm. Okay. What I was trying to say earlier was I, I don't believe that the primary failure is that women couldn't perform this task, although it can be extremely difficult mm -hmm. under all kinds of bad conditions. And, but... I'm saying that even if women perform this task perfectly, if you have a social order in which the father, as it were, swoops in and takes all of the male children out of this and teaches them to repudiate this, mm -hmm. and indeed is subjugating the mother as wife, uh, then what children come to do is to devalue this form of survival, mm -hmm. and instead mm -hmm. What they replace that idea of surviving destruction with is retaliation. Mm -hmm. What mm -hmm. men do is not survive destruction. Men, who are supposedly so great, actually can't survive destruction. When somebody tells them they did something you know, wrong, they collapse. Or they, or they retaliate. They retaliate, right? Right. Yeah. You know, whereas mothers are being told all the time, in effect, by their babies, no, that didn't feel good. No, that didn't feel good. I'm still, wow, 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 right. you didn't do that right. Right, right, right. Okay, men can't take that. So, so, so this is what, but do but, I so what do they do? They, do, they can dominate, but they can't, they can't actually survive without retaliation. Now, of course, some men can do this, and they've had mothers who taught them to do this. And like say, Obama was very clear that he could do this because his mother taught him to do this. Mm -hmm, However, mm -hmm. She didn't teach him to fight other men, which is another story. And that's, that can be a problem right. <laughs> if you're surrounded by men who only fight. But uh, we leave that for another time. The point is that 
if we take this out of the political sphere for a moment and just in terms of mental health, the ability to uh, be able to survive and the ability to, or shall we say, the expectation that the other will survive, according to Winnicott, and we all think this now, this is like crucial mm -hmm. to our mental health. And what that implies is that when something goes wrong, especially once we're not just babies, but even as babies, when something goes wrong, you can see in the mother-infant interaction videos, you can see that babies are also taking certain steps to mm. make the interaction work better. So if the mother is responsive, the baby gets the idea that they are the ones repairing what went wrong. In other words, if this is too intense and I need it to drop down a little, if mother responds to that and gets my signal, then that shows me that my signal actually has the effect mm -hmm. of changing the interaction. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's the crucial model, that's the crucial paradigm mm -hmm. for all future moments of recognition, which is, oh, when I give a signal, it has an impact, it transforms the relationship, and now we are back into a flow. So okay. this can be done both by the child and by the mother, at least right, hypothetically, right? right? So, so yeah. as long as you have a good enough partner, yeah. it's like you can get the ball over the net most of the time if you're with a good enough partner. Right. Well, it turns out in terms of mother-infant interaction that you only need to get the ball over the net 33% of the time, hmm. right? You only need to have both partners be in sync mm -hmm. a third hmm. of the time. And that means there's lots of room Mm -hmm. for people not getting it right as long as they understand what it means to mm -hmm. get back into sync. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter that they're not always in sync. Why is there such resistance to actually thinking that we would agree to want to be in the flow and rather we say it makes us vulnerable or dependent for maybe a bit of the time and therefore we'd rather live in a world where I'd rather just want to dominate. I do not want to sort of think I expect the other person wants my well-being. So why is this other model so strong that it's so easy? And then I also read your work, of course, as a white man. I grew up in Germany. I know you studied in Germany and you talk quite a bit about, you extrapolated this to sort of the, some of the most challenging conversations between perpetrators and survivors in South yes. Africa, in Germany, in in this country, so why is this? Why is it so difficult to be in that space for people? Do you think? Well, then you really have to introduce uh, other possible explanations. I mean, at this moment in history, we can certainly say that we have an economic system that's based on exploitation, and because of that, the accumulation of wealth in and its concentration in the hands of a few people makes for a very dangerous situation. However, many people have argued, no, no, it's democracy that makes things dangerous. It's, you know, let's concentrate wealth and power in the hands of a few. That'll work out really well for us. <laughs> <laughs> Usually those people are among the few. Right. Or they are people who identify with the few or want to be part of the few. And so one of the dilemmas is, I think, that the sense of I mean, we could choose many answers here, so I'm just picking one. If you imagine that historically, for long periods of time, we had, in early human existence, we had tribal societies that were relatively equal and based on cooperation, but at a certain point, enough wealth was created that certain people could 
concentrate that wealth in their hands and then they became dominant within their social worlds and those people then began to exploit the labor of other people and concentrate wealth more and more. Let's assume that. Then what happens is that you need to be protected by those people who have the power and the wealth. Mm -hmm. And so the temptation to be protected by them is greater than the trust that you and your equals uh, are going to be able to adjudicate this together. Uh, and the, the sense, of, so you know, you have very mythic examples of the, this um, really emotionally powerful idea like in The Godfather. Godfather was probably like the most, you know, affecting movie in America, and yet it wasn't about somebody who um, primarily had power by owning Boeing, General Motors, right. or Ford. The means of production. The right. means of production, yes. <laughs> right. It was someone who had power in a very personal way mm -hmm. and could guarantee the safety of those who obeyed. Mm-hmm. Now, as we know, according to social psychologists going back to the Frankfurt School who influenced me, the idea was that the authority, and of course this was always invested in a father figure, the authority figure who protected you created a great sense of safety. Now Freud said this, he said there's nothing stronger in a child than the desire for a father's protection. Mm -hmm. Now, I've just said that I don't believe that, that I believe there's this whole other current. Right, right, right. And, and I don't want to seem simplistic here, but I can't avoid it for the sake of this moment. Let's just imagine that we have two channels, and one is the maternal channel in which we do have all these early experiences of the way in which we can be reciprocal with others. And then we have a gradual entry into a social order that's defined by having to have a, by getting our safety through being to some degree subservient to powerful uh -huh. figures um, which of those is going to win out so far we know which of those two channels has won but there are always movements mm -hmm. that uh, whether these are movements that emphasize fraternity that is to say the the, the equal subjectivity mm -hmm. or, or there or movements that emphasize nonviolence, which is to say, again, respect and dignity of, of all people and the wish to alleviate suffering. What, whatever these movements are that in some sense are, even if they weren't explicitly feminist, are based on the idea that we're going to work more on this other channel, which mm -hmm. I'm calling just for the moment the maternal channel. Mm -hmm. If you imagine that those have never truly won out, but that they've had a huge impact despite how still overwhelmingly organized around domination our society is, then you can see that one way to look at this is we're always in a struggle. And feminism would be, and again I'm not just, this is a simplistic argument, but feminism would be the answer in the sense that feminism would be saying if you really disrupt this inequality between man and woman, and you really insist on the equal dignity of all human beings, and especially of women, then you are going to inevitably challenge all these other mm -hmm. forms mm -hmm. of power. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying that will necessarily work out, but I'm saying that, that could, you could see that as a fulcrum. Right. 
Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so my early work was based on the idea that we can take that fulcrum and we should understand all its ramifications, including the way in which it can be oversimplified or misunderstood to think that we are just reversing the relations of domination. Yes, but I've heard you say that feminism doesn't mean that women should be in power, but say that actually there's a recognition that there are reciprocal relations between people, which is quite right. different from of substituting course. one set of domination with another set of domination. Right. So, and as, as we've seen, feminism and all other movements at some moments tend to say, let's for the moment just assume power. And you describe that in your books to say that revolutionary moments will seek at some moments to say, we're just going to try to dominate because we've been right. dominated, this is the way. You're saying, is there another right. way to upend the system, to really take it apart and put it back together, not to just replicate the structure of domination? I see in your work going from this um, work on trying to open up this space of thinking of the relationship between the mother and the infant to say it opens up another space for actually what you call political or social being together. It's not just right. the infant and the mother, but it opens up a thinking of society in a different way that's not structured around domination and subjugation, but something else. And then in your, most, in your more recent work, you've talked about these efforts for societies to live together or come together after trauma or catastrophe or political violence. So there's, a, there's an idea here that what you want to introduce is a way of coexistence that's not structured along these binaries. And also, I think that what came to my attention was the value of learning from efforts that were made to repair societies, groups, and individuals after suffering trauma that was caused by uh, political and social events. Mm -hmm. In other words, well, the social recognition of collective trauma, mm -hmm. which I was interested in uh, both in the Middle East and in places like Chile and in South Africa mm -hmm. where it was necessary for people to heal from really horrific pain and suffering that was caused by not just some abstract kind of violence but very specifically caused by violence in the interest of social oppression and domination where one group of people has not simply taken power from another group, but one group of people has, in order to take that power, perpetuate that power, murdered, tortured, and so forth, mm -hmm. uh, which is a terrible reality that we live with, and began to seem like something that we needed to think about. Social healing and repair is something we need to think about because Again, to put this somewhat schematically, in the period when I was a young adult and growing up, uh, many societies were becoming liberated from colonialism, and the idea of liberation, national liberation, was a very powerful idea, uh, whether it was in Vietnam or Africa. Uh, and so those movements of liberation were idealized. Mm -hmm. And then we found that those movements were 
deeply and adversely affected by having grown out of a situation in which the oppression and violence and denial of human dignity was so great that, shall we say, the subjectivity of the people was impaired. That is, they were already affected by being victims mm -hmm. in a way that made their revolt against oppression too likely to fall back into this binary where you reverse the oppression by not just oppressing the other, the one who used to oppress you, unfortunately that wasn't even necessarily the case. You could just split within your own group and oppress one another. And so the history of the revolutions mm. of the 20th century, starting of course with the Soviet Union, was a very bloody history in which the expression was that the revolution devours its children. Mm -hmm. um, that people uh, begin to turn the same violence and oppression on each other, that they still think in terms of control, they still operate in terms mm -hmm. of uh, dealing with existential threat uh, to one's own status or power by eliminating or harming someone else. So you keep having these cycles of harming. And if you are then thinking about how you would like to see a political movement arise or you would like to see a struggle for liberation that is not going to be reversed in this way, if that's your thinking, which was my thinking in the 80s when I wrote Bonds of Love, you have to ask yourself, how do we get out of that cycle of domination at the social level? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Our best examples of that came from various kinds of social healing that were not necessarily even based in Western thinking. Um, the as much as people think that, say, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa was based on Christianity, uh, that might be a misunderstanding. It might be better to realize that uh, Christianity alone could not have produced that way of thinking that Tutu and others were at least as influenced by Ubuntu, the South African uh, ethical perspective in which the idea is my humanity depends on your humanity. Mm -hmm. My mm -hmm. dignity depends on your dignity. So Tutu says a person who has Ubuntu is someone who is able to dignify others, mm -hmm. able to see the humanity in the other. And you could see where this fits in with what I had been trying to say all along, which is that the crucial thing is to be able not just to demand recognition for the self, but be able to recognize the other. So if you think about the nonviolent civil rights movement, the idea there was we're demanding recognition for ourselves, but not by de denying right. the, the dignity or humanity of the other. On the contrary, the idea is if you really had your own humanity or dignity, you wouldn't be doing this. Right. I'm actually saving you from, uh, in some sense, uh, violating... Oh. And it does it involve one other aspect that the person, let's say, who is for the moment in a position of listening has to recognize also they may fail in that listening. They may not be able to actually 
accommodate or even understand or acknowledge and say I I or I failed so in some ways that what you describe in the interpersonal relationship in the therapeutic setting that sometimes the therapist also says I didn't respond in the right way maybe right so I think we we, we you moved over to listening but we hadn't talked about witnessing quite mm -hmm. yet so we're talking about situations in which people are giving testimony but we're also talking about therapy but we're also talking about the political world in which violations have to be recognized right. now maybe we should just backtrack for a moment and talk about that what does it mean that there are violations of what we expect in terms of recognizing human dignity right. and that's where I have spoken about the notion of the lawful world meaning that we have a representation of a world in which there is recognition, there is dignity. That representation I call the lawful world. And there are always going to be violations of our expectations in life, for sure, but specifically violations of what might be considered um, lawful, that is to say, uh, our basic principles about human dignity and the need to recognize one another those violations have to be acknowledged. And mm -hmm. what really makes the world lawful, to use that term mm -hmm. um, advisedly, what makes the world lawful, that is to be in some sense uh, in harmony with basic principles, mm -hmm. what makes the world lawful is that not that we never have violations, but that we acknowledge them. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. That process of acknowledgement, again, we can see this going all the way back into infancy where the caregiver rather instinctively mm -hmm. acknowledges that something was painful or uncomfortable for the child. In an authoritarian mm -hmm. system, yeah. the child is told, be quiet, don't cry, nothing hurts that much, right. be tough, or just be quiet. Uh, don't tell me I did anything wrong. So there's never acknowledgement on the part of those who are actually responsible for creating a lawful world for the child. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Rather, there's a demand for obedience and uh, that maybe one day you'll be the one who's, who's re requiring obedience of others, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but you will be obedient until such mm -hmm, time. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. that is not what we mean by a lawful mm -hmm, world. Mm -hmm, That's what we mean mm -hmm. actually by a world that is ruled by an arbitrary power who might or might not have rules uh, but no violation is ever mm -hmm. acknowledged. The opposite of that, in a sense the democratic way, is to acknowledge violations. Mm -hmm. um, so then we get to situations where the world has failed to properly acknowledge harm and violations that have occurred and are still occurring, whether they are occurring in the Congo or whether they occurred in Germany during the Nazi period, there is a level at which the historical facts are sometimes given lip service, yeah. but the real nature and depth of those violations are covered over their emotional significance, the way in which people have been emotionally damaged even unto many generations. Mm -hmm. So now you get to what you were saying, which is the inability to listen, the inability to really hear 
mm -hmm. the cry of pain, uh, as a way in which we keep a certain kind of social order in motion by continually denying, or as we would say, dissociating, that this ongoing pain is happening. And in many cases, the denial of that ongoing pain uh, causes individuals themselves to feel not just misunderstood, but confused, powerless, um, disoriented, uh, ready to fall into the hands of all kinds of uh, corrupt and unscrupulous leaders, right? All that can go on. And at the same time, you can also have well-meaning people who think that you just shouldn't get so excited about the pain and suffering of others because it will really keep things from, you know, running smoothly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so we have this, we have many levels of social denial. We have social denial in the interest of uh, control by those who are, shall we say, most interested in retaining control, but we also have social denial by those who really don't want to be too disrupted um, and they're still managing to survive the way things are. And then we also have denial by those who are quite frightened and do not want to admit, for instance, that we will all be underwater or that, you know, half of the life mm -hmm. forms on the earth are being eliminated or, mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. forth. So in the, in the interest of denying the catastrophe that is about to come, we... Hmm we don't let ourselves feel a certain kind of fear and pain. Um, how does that fit in with what I was just saying about the lawful world? You could say that, <clears throat> I don't know, the, the impediment, the obstruction to experiencing um, the lawful world is as a possibility, as a reality, is a, um, a disbelief in the repair. Right. You have to believe that repair is possible. You have to believe that you can repair small disruptions between you and another person, but you also have to believe that you can repair what has gone wrong historically and socially. You have to believe that we can tolerate the pain of hearing other people's trauma if you're going to repair or heal their trauma, right. but you also have to tolerate knowing that your leaders and the people you trusted have made bad decisions, or you have to tolerate knowing that those people with economic power are really doing things that are so massively destructive, and you can't just stop them by waving your hand you really will have to fight them. You have to tolerate knowing all these things, right? But knowing all these things isn't possible if you don't have a sort of baseline idea uh, that repair is possible. So a big function of recognition isn't just recognition of the other, yeah. it's also recognition as the means by which we believe, um, I'm not putting this so well, I did, I did get this in your book and I found this was really a real contribution that you said to recognize historical suffering or individual or collective trauma or all sorts of injustices gives 
a space to recognize them as legitimate and moving forward. It's not right. burying us or getting stuck in the past, but saying the public recognition that some acknowledgement. people... Acknowledgement. Acknowledgement. But it English, creates an opportunity, a space yes. actually where this is acknowledged, which right. means we have some faith we can move forward. But exactly. by not acknowledging, because out of fear, as you described, or other reasons, denial, etc., or complicity, or you benefit from denying it, you don't believe really that you could move forward. So acknowledging it doesn't mean we're going to be stuck in the past, but acknowledging means we recognize that some things have not been right for some people, but we also acknowledge that we may be able to move forward. And right. We, we, we believe that, that repair is possible. Yeah. Um, and so in, in English, I was going to say, we have the advantage that we have two separate words. We have the word acknowledge and we have the word recognize right. and the word acknowledgement is somewhat different and most other languages when my book is translated they have this problem that acknowledgement is not the same as recognition. as recognition in English because acknowledgement refers very specifically to admitting or affirming something that has gone wrong mm -hmm. uh, or acknowledgement refers to affirming and admitting and confirming uh, that something happened. Mm -hmm. um, so we might uh, acknowledge that we made a mistake, but we recognize how you feel mm -hmm. about that mm -hmm. mistake. Mm -hmm. And so those distinctions are, are ones that we're able to make. And they're very important because we're now um, coming up to what I was uh, heading for when I was talking about the lawful world, which is the idea of the third. Mm -hmm. And the idea of the third goes all the way back to how are we going to solve the binary? And the answer is that we're going the binary of domination and submission. In order to get out of that, you have to believe in a third thing. That's neither domination or submission. What is that third thing? Well, that third thing in that case was recognition. Um, but that third thing could be the principle of equality it could be many other things, but the point is that you have a third thing that you're oriented to that takes you out of the power struggle. That third thing could be love. Many people feel that third thing is love. Um, some people would say God is the third. It, could it be something right? like solidarity, a political yeah. concept? Yeah, it could be. It could be so. It could be solidarity. Um, and what people in this in contemporary language would be called allyship, for example, that you went you're an ally, which is a different category, not my own, not someone else's, but you both. But solidarity is yeah. then based on there being either a belief in our fundamental equality or in um, our shared need for freedom or something else, right. right? So there can be many levels of this whole discourse mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. takes the, the place of the third. You could, you could be a person who believes in community, you could be a person who believes more in individual liberty, but both of those could lead you to having uh, solidarity with someone who you feel is being deprived of their liberty. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right, so, so the point of this isn't to uh, argue for a particular political uh, framework or ideology at this moment, but to say that what we do have in common when we think in terms of the third is that there is a lawful world that is a representation not necessarily existing, a lawful world in our minds in which 
these values are upheld and that when they are violated uh, this violation not only affects the person who's directly a victim but in a sense affects all of us because it's um, harming our world and if we feel connected to our world then we feel harmed as well and this is sort of also what the idea of Ubuntu that um, <clears throat> the Archbishop Tutu talked about in relation to truth and reconciliation is all about that is that we are part of something together and in that sense, solidarity is a deeper concept mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. it's not just being allies. It's actually that we are, we really belong to a shared world of humanity or of our particular society. But in this case, now, in 2019, of the planet. I want to circle back in a way because I found your work kind of hopeful because you start with this diet of the baby and the caregiver, it's very sort of basic and sort right. of intuitive to all of us. And there's right. something that you activate that we've all been through. So you're not reaching for this very esoteric and you have to be a trained psychoanalyst to discover this category of your third. But in your work, it seems to me, we all have been through this and we all have part of this in us. So we can activate one a dimension of our experience that could then serve as the basis for this other hope. Because I think a lot of people today would think, when I hear lawful world, I'd see brazen officials who have complete disregard for a shared world. Right. But you're saying there's something so else. So they're unlawful. Us. That's why right. we see them as corrupt. That's why we see them as... And that's as, a recognition as, that there's... failed. They are, our leaders are failed because they don't represent what is lawful. They represent what is... Uh, the opposite. Now, people often ask me, why do I use the word law? It's a problematic word. Da, 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 da. Of course it is. But the reason I like it is that it is a word that goes cuts across categories of life because we think in terms of natural law. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I always used to like the joke, you know, gravity is not just a good idea, it's the law. Okay, so there are certain things that must be. Mm -hmm. There are certain things that you cannot live without. And, for the, and there are certain ways in which the world works that we sort of refer to as natural laws. But we also have uh, lawfulness, say, in music. And so in early, mm -hmm. uh, in early uh, thinking, um, say, um, with uh, the Neoplatonists, we had the idea of the harmony of the spheres. Right, right. right? And that meant that there was a lawful order of the right. spheres, which corresponded to music and mathematics and so forth. Yeah. Right? So we have laws of mathematics and we have laws of physics yeah. and we have laws of music. And in a certain sense, I'm saying there are laws of, of social being. Yeah. Um, yeah. Nice. <laughs> of existence in a way that are deeper or different from what some people think is the right thing. Yeah, and so um, uh, it's maybe a problematic category for some people, but for me, it's trying to say that uh, it's something you referred to earlier, which is some things aren't up for grabs. Right, you yes. Know? And it's non-negotiable, right. That's right. There's but this is maybe what Brian Greene or something does, the elegant universe. There's something deeper. 
Yeah. And not in a mysterious or esoteric or divine sense, but there are some patterns. Or maybe that, that is what the divine yeah. is. The, that may be the divine, maybe right? We but, all ha- maybe yeah. we, see, maybe we all have an experience of the divine that we yes. need to right. um, be more right. uh, protective of, yeah. um, rather than imagining that the divine is somewhere else. It's, you know, it's right here in the order of things that we experience. And so there is a constant struggle to be more in touch with that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, to believe in that, to believe in the possibility of repair as something that you and I do at a very small level and then something that can expand all the way out, like it has a fractal quality. I'm going to ask you a question about your thera- your practice. Mm-hmm. Does this believe in the possibility of repair, allow you to do your work, which must give you a huge amount of stories of great difficulty. People probably talk to you about all sorts of things. Some are probably less difficult than others, but to get out of that every day after you talk to people and to carry their stories with you. Um, and then to still go home and say, I'm a, I'm a positive person because it can weigh you down. Yes, but I think that when, again, this is, um, Sure, things can weigh you down, but things can also lift you up. And part of what is uplifting is, uh, contrary to popular belief, that when you share pain with another person, you come into deep contact with them. Uh, when you share somebody else's suffering, you are helping to alleviate their suffering. Mm-hmm. So uh, if somebody's pain and suffering have not been heard, and you are hearing them, then this act of truly hearing them and receiving um, the knowledge Mm -hmm. of what they have suffered can be a form of healing for them. So if you are successful in doing this at any given moment Mm -hmm. and creating an an interaction that feels safe enough and that feels... um, in some sense, enough infused with mutual understanding and empathy, then you feel that you are creating repair, that the relationship that you're having now is repairing uh, the suffering of not having been heard. Because there's always the pain and then there's the additional pain of not having your pain known or recognized. So that whole idea of recognition, of course, extends to recognizing not just the humanity of the other, but as I said at the very beginning, the suffering of the other. And if we go back again to infancy, much of what we're doing uh, when we're taking care of an infant is recognizing distress. Mm -hmm. So one very uh, important, well-known infancy researcher, Beatrice Beebe, whom I studied with originally, um, argues that recognition of distress uh, by the mother or caregiver uh, uh, will determine the outcome of the infant's psychic life in terms of how well or safely they feel they can attach to other people. So recognizing distress is a kind of a primary category of experience and we we kind of can do this, I mean like if you fall down in the street people will come over and they won't just try and help you get up but they will express some kind of concern for you know how you feel, how you are, even if they see that you're able to get up, are you okay? So recognition of distress is like a really primary part of social life and part of what I would call the lawful world. Non-recognition of distress is a violation, right? 
So, but since it so often happens that in some way we fail in the therapy situation to maybe correctly identify which moment uh, is the one in which the person was trying in some indirect way to express something and we didn't grasp it immediately or mm -hmm. we mm -hmm. said something you know that was perhaps too clever but not emotionally in tune enough or we were too precipitous in thinking we understood it. All of those things are very small violations, very small, what we call ruptures. But we repair them. We repair them by showing our understanding, by acknowledging how they felt. And sometimes we have bigger ones because people come and present things that they don't even know they're presenting and it's unconscious to them and to us. And we, we say then that we're both inside this dissociation. We're both in dissociation about what's happening between us and suddenly it might explode. Mm -hmm. Suddenly there's a moment of anger. Suddenly there's a moment of truth. What happens? We acknowledge that. Oh, mm -hmm. wow, I didn't get that. Sometimes it's really painful to acknowledge mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it's also uh, joyful or exciting to acknowledge. It sort of depends on how the whole interaction right, goes. Right, right, right. It also depends, honestly speaking, on the two people's capacity for repair. You can have a, a, yeah, a fr you can have a friendship where something went wrong, and both people are very excited and happy to figure out what went wrong, or, or they're not. Or they're not, right? But I like this part about <clears throat> your work that you. I think part of what your books are doing is teaching people to have this faith that repair is possible, and all the examples taken out of these really difficult political contexts and also out of your therapy are really beautiful in a way to give people this kind of hope that repair is possible. And if you believe in repair, of course, you're more likely to create it, yeah, right? And, and then if you have so, more experiences of repair, then you're more able to transmit that. And so I have a friend who travels all over the world working with people in post-conflict violent situations um, who always says that repair is what you sort of have to present as the possibility mm -hmm. if you're going to then figure out how to solve any problem or help people to feel better. Right, right. You have to lead with that. But that's actually nice that it could solve, <coughs> could perpetuate itself. So repair yeah. is, in a sense, the third. That is to say, repair creates the third. Mm -hmm. uh, the process by which we co-create a certain kind of um, interaction between mm -hmm. us. Again, very basically, co-creating a dialogue is co-creating a third. And mm -hmm. that third becomes something that neither one of us has full control over, right? It just seems to get have a life of its own. Right. We're nodding, right. we're like, you know, doing all these things that I call rhythmic. Rhythmic, right, right. That are, not, <coughs> that are right, that aren't just symbolic. And we're doing all those things, right. and that makes the whole thing happen. And uh, it's co-created, and we're not worried about who's in control of it, right? Right. Right. Well, that's my hope with this podcast, right. in a way, to let people into this, into this space. Exactly. <laughs> so. And then that space is a space in which, look, you can have all kinds of thoughts. Right. right. right? Thinking that's, can go on in that yeah, space, right? That's, that's the hope. So I, I want to thank you, um, Jessica. Really a wonderful conversation. We could have gone on for quite a while. <laughs> yes, we could have, but it was, it was wonderful just as it was. Uh, so thank you so much for being on the podcast. And thank you thank for you. being so interested. Thank you. That's great.